0: Hello from Brooklyn, I'm Brendan Hart, and welcome to Super Cities, a no-BS deep dive conversation about the people and trends moving cities forward. All views expressed are my own and do not reflect our sponsors or partners. Let's get into it. On this episode of Super Cities, I do a deep dive with Christy Weisskill Christy is a senior advisor to the president of Johns Hopkins University and the head of Johns Hopkins Technology Ventures. We cover Hopkins' integrated approach to entrepreneurship, why Baltimore is a great place to start and grow a business, and how technology moves from the lab to the market. This was a great wide-ranging conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Let's hear from Christy. Let's talk a little bit about how you ended up uh, at at Hopkins and and ultimately running uh, JHTV.
1: Okay, yes. So I've been at Johns Hopkins for six years. Before that, I had a close to two-decade career investing and building companies. So I worked on Wall Street. I was an investor in public companies and private companies. Uh, I had some leeway at an investment firm I worked where they let me do a fair amount of private investing. And so I invested in some companies and really saw how medical technology companies and life sciences companies in particular can be started can grow and become big companies. And I looked around Baltimore where I've lived now. As of this summer, it's 20 years that I've lived in Baltimore, and I have a great affinity for this city. I'm involved in a number of things and have a passion for doing what I can and, and just making this a wonderful place to live and work. And I saw that there was a lot of research happening in and around Johns Hopkins, but there weren't a lot of companies getting real substantial venture funding and growing, creating jobs. And I didn't know why. I started a couple of companies out of Johns Hopkins during uh, this period of time just to really try to better understand the ecosystem. And I saw that there was relatively little in terms of infrastructure and there were some barriers that existed. And I said to myself, there might be a better way to support the researchers, the students and others that are working on things out of the incredible research that happens at Johns Hopkins, very competitive research funding that we get year after year. Right. And so I, I uh, through this process of working with some of our faculty scientists, doctors to start these companies, I had some very strong ideas about what could be done. And I shared those ideas with some friends who introduced me to my now boss, the president of Johns Hopkins. Is that right? And so it took a few months, but it, but it ultimately um, the president, Ron Daniels, asked if I would come on his team and really head up an effort to bring some of these threads together to help support faculty and student entrepreneurs. To really be a, a vibrant ecosystem, to be a friendly front door to the investment community and to the corporate community. And so that's, we've set out on a strategy that was started when I joined and, and really over the last five years have tried to execute on that plan.
0: Interesting. I, that's entrepreneurial. <laughs> <of you. laughs> Truly. So let's talk a little bit about JHTV. How, how's the organization structured?
1: Where, uh, where does it sit within the university? Uh, and what are the main activities? JHTV's mandate is to work with the entire university. We have nine schools here at Johns Hopkins that ranges everything from the School of Medicine and the School of Engineering to and through the School of Music. We actually have a, a music startup that does piano sight reading, they have an app. So we That's truly great. cover the waterfront. Having said that, about three quarters of our activity does touch on the life sciences space. So we have a heavy presence, of course, because of our School of Medicine, our Department of Biomedical Engineering, our Engineering School, and, and our um, our work with the Applied Physics Lab, which is, of course, part of Johns Hopkins. All of these great innovations are coming out across the board, but specifically, life sciences is a is a specialty of that. And so what we are charged with doing is working with faculty and things that are invented actually are are property of the university. Some people don't know that. There was a a law passed in 1980 that said what's invented, the university owns, but the people who invented should share in that. And so all major research universities have these same types of rules. So our office understands what's being invented. We patent those things that we think have commercial potential, can be patented. And then we try to get those inventions to market. And that really just means working with industry to do so. So you can work with an existing company, you can work with investors to create a company, but the purpose is if you invent the next great surgical equipment or the next great cybersecurity software, whatever it is, our goal is to make the world a better place. And we do so by by really trying to connect the dots between the commercial world and the research world.
0: I have two questions that I think are, are important. The fact that JHTV crosses departments seems to be really a really critical component of the structure. We see universities, the business schools doing one thing, and the School of Engineering is doing something else relative to entrepreneurship and innovation. But you, you seem to have a uh, an intentional structure that cuts across schools. And the idea that housing activity in one central location allows for information advantages. Uh, is that is that right? Was that sort of a deliberate decision-making process or did it just sort of pan out that way?
1: Yeah. So l- let me answer the second question first. And, and that is that I do think there is something to having cross functions within a group because it allows you to really think about a particular impact, a particular invention and how it can get to market without being worried about individual incentives or, or individual silos. And, and I think that's critical. We're sitting right here as we do this interview in East Baltimore at a building called 1812 Ashland, and it houses an innovation hub. It houses our corporate partnership group. It houses our technology transfer group. It houses a number of functions that really serve faculty and our student population. And and so let me, by the by finishing that question, I'm going to answer your first question. And that is, why is it important to have a coordinated effort? We have colleagues across the university in career services, in development and alumni relations, in all of the uh, curricular projects that, that we interact with on a regular basis. But, but fundamentally, this is the reason that it's both important to have uh, the integrated functions in one place and to be coordinated as a university. And it's this, our customer at the end of the day is the investment and commercial world. And point. providing them a front door, a simple front door where they know to go. And we can't do everything, but we we can help them navigate when they are interested in the commercial aspects of what we are doing. So rather than having seven different landing pods for a venture capital firm where they may not know how to go and they may not know how to navigate, what we try to do is really provide that concierge service to get the deal done quickly, efficiently, and so that we can be a preferred partner for the investment and corporate community.
0: Makes it makes a lot of sense, and and that framing is is so powerful, right? To to think about serving who your customer is as as um, as an external set of stakeholders, it's powerful. You've mentioned several times the idea of supporting faculty and commercializing technologies that that are developed by by faculty members. Um, how does that how does that work? What what are the what are the structural opportunities that allow faculty members to become entrepreneurs or to uh, test the proposition of becoming entrepreneurs? Why is that an important component of JHTV?
1: It's critical. And we were just having a conversation about the customer. We very much have a dual customer model, right? So as much as we want to be that front door for industry and investors, our second customer and arguably even more important is the faculty at Johns Hopkins. And we look at faculty service very closely. We seek to be attentive and provide turnaround times that are second to none, and be responsive in, in a way a business advisor is responsive as opposed to a tech transfer office that's simply processing patents. So I, I think you've, you've hit on something really important, which is knowing our customer base, be it faculty or the investment corporate world is, is key. So, so structurally, to your point, how do faculty do this? What we see most often is that faculty, when they have an invention, when we patent it, so they, they report the invention to our office, we help them th- and pay for all of the expenses related to the patenting process. And then we help them from there, whether it's they want to connect with a large company and license it to a large company and work with them, or sometimes they want to create a company of their own and work on that. What we see in that process is that most often the faculty member will stay at Johns Hopkins. So they 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 have an entrepreneurial mindset. They're interested. Okay, I've been have created this great new scalpel, and every surgeon in the world will want to use it. Mm-hmm. But they're highly unlikely to leave and start that company. Right. The function that I think where we can play a major role is connecting them with business entrepreneurs that can take that idea forward. Okay. Investors that can invest in that business help really de-risk that business as much as possible by providing translational funding before it becomes a company. So if you're a faculty and member and you have an idea, the specific services you can get are your patenting is paid for and vetted, and we help you think about the end market. We help connect you to mentors and business advisors who may be able to help you start your company. We actually provide right here in East Baltimore and also near our Homewood campus, Flexible and affordable space, lab space, office space for you to start a company. Uh, We provide, as I mentioned, translational funding to to help you de-risk that opportunity. And we connect you to the investment community. We actually have a full-time person whose job it is to connect with the venture community of the types of venture firms that invest in our technologies. And so through all of those things, what we try to do, again, is serve as a business resource in as many ways as possible so that faculty can do the brilliant science, advise on the science to the new company, but but really let the business people take it and and execute so that the faculty member can keep doing the work in the lab.
0: I, 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 I want to put an exclamation point on this because we've had guests on this podcast who are scientists and have become unaffiliated with universities because those universities have made it so challenging mm-hmm. to to test the commercial value of breakthrough inventions um, so most universities don't do this particularly well in my experience but it sounds like you, you're just wrapping faculty members with so much support that the the fundamental risk opportunity equation changes pretty dramatically is that is that right?
1: Yes, we, we try. Look, we are like any very large organization. We don't always get it right. Things take time. Things take longer than they need to. There are lots of individuals that need to have input. So we're not perfect. But but I do think that one unique advantage, particularly of the mid-Atlantic region versus, say, parts of California, I'll just, uh, you know, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll pick on a, a, a region that I think there is a lot of innovation, but but is it really advancing humanity? I think the beautiful thing about Mid-Atlantic and the answer, the the crux of of the answer to your question is about impact. Right. And what we want to do is help the faculty member, help the community, help Johns Hopkins better as many lives on this planet as possible, make the world a better place. I I don't need another social media company to get my two teenagers further addicted to social media. Right. I just don't think the, the world needs that. Someone mentioned to me last week there are now three companies that have dating apps for dogs so that dogs can have friends. I mean, it's great. You, you want to go get users and and monetize your invention to so that dogs can have friends. That's wonderful. Right. But what we're trying to do here is cure and detect cancer to solve the ills of the cybersecurity problems that plague not only our own city but our, our federal government. To really think about ways in which we can redefine local workforce. We have a, a wonderful entrepreneur here who has the most popular course on Coursera, the the, the, universe, the online university platform in data science. It's the most popular certificate uh, for Coursera. And this individual has founded a, a company that's part of our ecosystem that trains local residents in Baltimore, uh, primarily who have GEDs to be data scientists. And that's provide, sir, it's it's great. I mean, when you think about um, the Alec Ross book, Industries of the Future, he mm-hmm. talks about where the jobs of the future are. Right. Let's use our own cooking and and be a wonderful source for jobs, not only in Baltimore, but in the country. And so that, it's it's all about impact.
0: I, I, I love that point. And, and I, I want to pull at two threads for, uh, that you just mentioned. One is, how valuable is it to be in a city? To be in a city that's that um that has a lot of energy, has a lot of potential, has a strong community component. Uh, we, we've talked to, to people from NYU in New York and and part being part of the city is is a is a powerful uh, sort of concept for the 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 entities that drive innovation. But the second point is, in life sciences, so sort of a, a, and, and hard technology. Um, Is that, do you think of that as a competitive advantage uh, for for Hopkins in that you have such a large talent base that connects directly to a city? That seems like a comprehensive model that is, that is really different and compelling.
1: I think those are, those are two Excellent questions. Let's start with the city question. I think there is no better place to start thinking seriously about building a tech ecosystem than a city like Baltimore. And here's why. And by the way, I will be the first to admit that Baltimore has a bad rap, okay? But so much of it is unfounded when you look and around every corner there is some new company getting started there is some new layer of social innovation of tech innovation of of education innovation happening for for example i'm on um have been very involved with teach for america here uh-huh. in baltimore we have the largest group of folks that have gone through the teach for america program and have decided to live in baltimore it's some somewhere north of a 1000 alumni who are wow. either teaching or involved in leadership and capacity because we are a wonderful place for millennials to live to yep. work and to change it's a lab it's a great place to come and try to change the world and people understand that yep. and so i think the vibrancy just to pull in your question about talent the vibrancy of young people wanting to live here it's affordable it's on the water it's close to dc and new york and and there are so many people passionate about the city that that I think it is critical. One more thing that that we really do pride ourselves on and on the team here at JHTV, and that is that we are not a silo. We are not Ivory Tower, Johns Hopkins, we're doing our thing. We have a number of programs uh, where we help community members innovate around social and technical problems. I, I also really do pride myself personally on being uh, friends and colleagues with other. Ecosystem builders across Baltimore. So we have a number of wonderful innovation hubs. The University of Maryland is a, is a the other anchor institution in town that does a lot in and around, particularly life sciences innovation. I speak with those colleagues regularly. We're actually hosting an event with them this That's week. That's great. So there's I, I think I think the idea that you can form connective tissue between the technology entrepreneurs, between the ecosystem builders, that is a critical part. And you can't do that if you're isolated, right? That's that is best done in a city setting. On the talent front, we are graduating hundreds and hundreds of talented individuals per year that have undergraduate degrees and PhDs in in life sciences and and high-tech industries. There is no better place to hire. There's there's one example of a company here called ProTennis. It was actually two medical students who started. They were in the middle of medical school, took a leave of absence. Hmm. They now have something like 70 employees. They're right here in, in the Inner Harbor and they talk about how hiring is actually easier for them than many of their colleagues in San Francisco for the following reason. In the world of cybersecurity, it's cybersecurity meets healthcare as their product, the best place to hire are actually from the three-letter agencies. Right. right? So, so NSA, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. As those folks grow in their careers and want to move to the private sector – it's great. There are tech companies hiring right here, so I, I think it's a it's a bit of a of an undiscovered gem in terms of the Mid Atlantic corridor and the types of talent in both life sciences and tech that we have. I, I think it's one of the reasons that Amazon is excited to to move to Virginia.
0: Yeah, it, it's 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 a powerful point. I have a lot of uh, engagements with financial services in New York, and interestingly, most of the big banks are building presences in um, in and around. Uh, the Baltimore mid-Atlantic region for exactly that reason. There is a, a giant cybersecurity talent pool here. Cost of living is, is reasonable relative to DC or New York. Quality of life is high. And it seems like you, your JHTV is trying to capture and, and, and compel a lot of that activity. It's a fascinating, fascinating model that most people in my worlds don't really uh, don't really appreciate or don't link Baltimore to that type of activity um, immediately. What what do most people misunderstand about Baltimore, Mm -hmm. about the city, about the culture, about the people uh, of Baltimore?
1: There is there is so much misunderstood. Uh, if I had a, a quarter for every time someone when I said I was from Baltimore saying that they had saw the wire, then I could probably buy my right. own private island in the Caribbean. And you know David Simon is a genius. It was a wonderful TV show, but it was fiction. and and I think that that the, the there are several myths. One is somehow that we are on the decline, and and I would say just the opposite. I think when you, when you look at the vibrancy of our arts district, whether it's museums or music or up and coming artists, it is uh, the the Maryland Institute College of Art is uh, is an absolute crown jewel of the city as well. I mean, there is so much good happening in the arts. There is also. So much happening in the social entrepreneurship world here. And there are so many smart and creative people really solving hard problems right. and really doing good work. The third thing about Baltimore that I think is particularly special is that it's a, a a big small town or a small big town, whichever way you want to look at it. And you're only a couple degrees of separation from people that can help in, in any walk of life. I was on a, a call earlier with someone who's helping really rethink the the vibrancy of the ecosystem and, and what we can do. And it was someone from from a big business. And it's not something, if I was in New York, quite frankly, the person probably wouldn't return my call. But this person had reached out to me. And so I think the idea that there is access for, for different types of people, for diverse groups of people, for... Um, young, old, uh, black, white, woman, man, you know, w- whatever it is, I-, I think that there is a real chance in Baltimore to connect with those who can really help and build businesses. And um, and I'm just not sure it's the same way, the, at least what I've seen, it's not the same way. We are very proud of uh, the female entrepreneurs that we're building here in Baltimore. National t- statistics tell us two to three percent of venture capital dollars go to women, which I, I just think is unacceptable. So we're trying to do things a real about that. And I think Baltimore is a place where we can try those things and have access to C-suites and to financial firms and to others in a way that is incredibly supportive where doors are open. I, I often
0: hear um, with with folks who, who work on innovation at, at a university level that universities have great talent universities have large IP portfolios but often the most challenging ingredient is access to capital debt or equity financing. Um, how, how do how do you think about um, encouraging um, the investor and and business communities to participate in in the activities that JHTV is driving
1: it is. Absolutely, a uh, one of our pain points, simply because we don't have early stage venture firms on the ground here in Baltimore. Right, and so we have had to spend time courting those firms to fly in from other cities, primarily Boston and and uh, different cities within California, to come and spend time here. Right, and and it's wonderful. No one says no to come and meet with with brilliant faculty at Johns Hopkins. No right. one says no. So we've had luck in in getting them. Would it be nice to have those ferns on the ground so that they could just walk over to the Starbucks right here at 1812 Ashland and have coffee with us and with our faculty members? Yes, that would be wonderful. It does require, in most cases, a, a train or a plane. And and so I think we will continue to need to cultivate those long-term relationships. This is a flywheel, though. And right. eventually, when you see successes like we had a couple of weeks ago, uh, this company Thrive that raised $110 million um, we've had some some notable exits um, in terms of IPOs and acquisitions. A- as that starts to build, firms will locate here. It's just a matter of time. In the meantime, we have to exert extra effort in making sure that people know what we're doing. We're also really being, trying to be thoughtful about the high net worth and the angel community, the family office community, to say what type of gaps can they fill. They They have historically been supportive, but it has been much more about, the faculty member may or may not have a relationship. And we want to try to reduce those uh, those access barriers and try, really try to make it more egalitarian in terms of how can we connect great ideas to investors, whether they're an individual or an institution.
0: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. There's some universities that have started to sort of structure their alumni base, for purposes of investing and, and financing these types of activities. Is that part of the the overall approach to make sure that Hopkins graduates who have an, a distinct affinity for the university are either having access to or know what's happening on the ground in real time?
1: Not exactly. And, and I'll say this, the way we have spent our time with alumni and and we have really ramped up these efforts lately in in conjunction with our colleagues in development and alumni relations and and that is that folks that graduated from Johns Hopkins whether you were an undergraduate here whether you went to graduate school here medical school school of public health the the likelihood that you are going to be wildly successful in life is high right we we produce very very talented people who really do in in various ways, change the world for the better. And so when we come across an alum who maybe has just sold their biotech company, or maybe is building a software company, or uh, um, we, we have an alum who just sold a very large consumer products company, we know that one of the things we need most of all is mentorship and talent. Mm. So the way we have tried to activate and engage our alumni group is to have them back and let them meet some of the students and and scientists that are doing work here and seeing how they can advise and help. And so we've we've had a number of alumni who are actively engaged in mentor roles, who judge business plan competitions, who come and mentor our student teams, just to just to name a few. But we have had we are so grateful for the alumni that like to come back, that like to be a part of this, and and so we want to keep we want to keep doing that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. How is the, the tech transfer component of JHTV structured at this, at this point, how many patents do, do, does, does the university hold? What types of trainings or, or modules do you have for, for faculty members that are interested in becoming, or at least testing the proposition of becoming an entrepreneur?
1: Yes. So we, we, uh, reported to us across the nine schools, as I mentioned before, are anywhere on a given year between four and 500 reports of invention. So if you think about every what year. that means, every year, year incredible. after, it is incredible. It's, I, I believe that we're top five in the world in terms of just pure volume of inventions. And if right. you think about what that means, what is a report of invention? It's someone has disclosed something to us that they believe no one has ever done before. So, I mean, truly uh, imaginative, creative, life-changing, game-changing types of work. So we we sift through those and try to figure out if we're able to patent them, if there's something is commercially relevant. And about a third of those in any given year, we choose to file the initial patents um, for, for those technologies. Currently, we have something north of 2,500 um, active live patents, 2,500
0: um, across the university. That's right. Active patents.
1: That's right. So it's a huge volume. Again, if, if we're number uh, we, I think we're number two or three to, to MIT and, and maybe a, a couple of other places, but I mean, right. we're just as far as pure volume of the inventory of, of the, the patents that we have. And we end up doing about 150 deals per year with industry. So licensing various technologies and anywhere from 10 to 20 of those per year are new startup companies. Oh, interesting. So we start 10 to 20 new companies a year? Um before JHTV was created, um the, the first half of this decade companies were raising south of 100 million a year in venture for all together, all combined venture revenue coming into Hopkins companies. Last year we did about 700 million. This year we'll do um maybe not quite 700 but but somewhere close. So So really a step change in terms of venture dollars coming in, in terms of the attention being paid to our patents. And and your question directly on how we train faculty, we have spent a bit of time in the last couple of years coming up with what we refer to as the seven questions. And it's part of our startup guide. We're very proud for those faculty that are listening. If you don't have a copy, please, uh, please call (laughs) me. I'd, I'd love to get you a copy. But the seven questions really do go through what, what's the technology? Why is it differentiated? What's the unmet need? What's the competitive landscape? How much money is it going to take to get to market? Is there, a, is there an onerous approval process to really try to define what the size of the opportunity, how much money you're going to have to raise in order to, to make a difference and and what how we can possibly help? So we really do try to orient from the very first moment faculty report their invention to us, what is the commercial landscape like? I
0: always find this tech transfer uh, conversation interesting because it, it it gets sort of legal at some point right the patent is a, is a is a legal protection but what it what we're really talking about is a is a very large asset base correct right that has That's commercial right. value and for a variety of reasons reasons of process oftentimes those asset bases don't reach the commercial market and so it's, it seems like a, a core pillar of JHTV is getting university assets into the market through a variety of it. mechanisms. Um, and that feels unique in in, in terms of, of the intense focus. What what is what is the the corporate world sort of think about the, this approach that that you are actively engaging them to get Hopkins assets into the market? Yeah.
1: Well, look, I, I think there are a number of my tech transfer colleagues around the country that are very much trying to do the same thing, and I've learned a lot from them. So I I, I can think of places like Columbia and Stanford and MIT and Northwestern and Emory and on and on and on and sure, on, and on sure. that have had outstanding commercial success. And, and so I want to really give credit to those that I, I've only been in this industry for six years. I'm not a patent attorney. Right. I'm not an attorney at all, in fact, right, and right. so I've I've learned a lot from from those around us. But but I think the the answer lies in the following: we, like other universities, spend uh, spend millions and millions of dollars a year. In fact, our number uh, for the last few years has been around eight million dollars a year. I mean, that is, as you point out, that is a serious investment into assets. And at the end of the day, the reason we often get asked, you know don't you want the technology to be available for the world? Why would you patent? And it's it's exactly for that reason that that often the commercial partner won't invest the required amounts unless there is some protection. If you're going to spend all the money and develop the product and then have 10 other copycats within a day of your launch, right. why would you invest the dollars? And so the patent is just a, a natural way to make sure that you can, or, or to try to make sure that you can find a commercial partner that's willing to invest the dollars. Uh, it is highly technical. We outsource some of that work. We have in-house patent attorneys. We we spend a lot of time thinking through how to best get those patents. And and as I've learned from my tech transfer colleagues, any patent worth its salt is litigated. You will fight over it. It will be fought over. Oh, interesting. And and so I think um I think at the end of the day, you're you're trying your hardest to get these products to market. If they're wildly successful and and the patent uh, holds up, it will be challenged, and you just do your best to stand behind faculty and your licensee and say, "We invented this, and 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 we ought to uh, reap the rewards of having done so."
0: It's it's an interesting point. How has student interest in entrepreneurship changed well, since you've been at at Hopkins?
1: we always had a very entrepreneurial spirit about our students and in fact we have an outstanding curriculum that that is among the most popular courses available to our undergrads within our school of engineering here uh, it's called the center for leadership education they teach all sorts of fabulous entrepreneurship we also have a, an outstanding masters program in biomedical engineering that that goes through design courses oh. and thinking about business modeling and business planning. So long before I arrived and long after I leave, this will be a, a wildly entrepreneurial place. What we have tried and sought to do is identify the gaps. Where do students need help? And, and by visiting places like the Harvard iLab, um, mm-hmm. a number of universities have done really great work around the student engagement piece. We uh, We have built out a team and an actual physical space For students to ideate, to have that experiential component. Our space, which is near our Homewood campus, which is where our undergraduates uh, study, has a maker space. It Uh has a a student space. We have lots of events. We have mentors, as as I've mentioned before, available to students. We have some student prizes from fund everywhere from $500 all the way up to our giant annual prize of $30,000 for a student team to really spend the time over the summer and build out their company. So so we what we have tried to do is take the energy that's happening in the classroom and the ideas that happen in the dorm room and bring those to light. So we have a number of student companies that have now gone on to raise substantial venture funding. They're building many of those companies right here in Baltimore. They are doing magical and wonderful things for the world and all we want to do is take a front row seat to this uh to this great activity. It's
0: it's uh Right. When, when people talk about ecosystems, that's what you're describing, right? It's, it's this, I often think about the language that we use uh, around entrepreneurship and innovation and, and how that language impacts narrative. And thinking about the continuity of effort from an undergraduate student to a graduate who is now starting a business who may or may not come back to Hopkins for a graduate program who may or may not connect to the asset base that you're describing or collaborative opportunities with professors, all doing that in an intentional, hopefully localized way, um, seems like a really powerful ecosystem that's that's being developed. And if it's connected to other entities, University of Maryland that, that you mentioned earlier, there, there becomes creative density right the the idea that more of this can happen when more of it happens is that how you think think about these things
1: absolutely the the density piece is critical in in a number of areas first of all when i wake up each morning what i think about is can i be additive to the baltimore skyline can we change the skyline and add the names of tech and biotech companies coming out of the institutions building right here in baltimore and and i think when this story is told in 5 or 10 or 20 or 30 years That is what I hope the narrative will be, that we're building. And the reason density is so critical is when you think about hiring for a startup company, think about telling your family, your your spouse, your your friends, I'm moving to Baltimore to go to work for a company that has two employees, right? You're not not going to work at Google. You're not going to work at T. Rowe Price. You're going to work for a startup. And there's an initial skepticism. No one's heard of this company. What are you doing? There's a risk. And to the extent that there are other companies around, if if that company doesn't work out, if that job doesn't work out, then you just go across the street and and work at another company. I think that's one of the reasons Boston has been so particularly successful in the life sciences. You've got to give them credit. They have incredible density. You know, if you go to work in as a biostatistician for a company in Boston, yeah. the moment you leave that company, your company gets bought or, or goes under, you're going to have 50 job offers within a day. Yeah, there's no right. doubt. There's that's no right. doubt and we don't yet have that in Baltimore. And so I think when it comes to really addressing the issue of talent and talent attraction, we've got to build up a cluster. We're we've really placed a lot of bets just based on where the research has has led us in the space of cancer diagnostics. We've got a couple of companies that are hiring substantial numbers of people, and so I think we'll get there particularly in pockets, but that's that's where the tipping point is going to happen. When someone says Oh well, if I'm going to work in cancer diagnostics, Baltimore is where I've got to be.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. When I when I worked in Palo Alto, we, the, there was there was a lot of this, right? And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the risk factors for for the scenario that that you um, just laid out is in many ways cost, cost of living, cost of operating, cost of real estate, and I know Hopkins has done a a lot of work and has put a lot of energy into the idea of trying to control for some of those high overhead costs, like real estate, where, where is this 10 person startup going to work? Is that, is that a, is that a core component of, as you think about the future of, of entrepreneurship and startups and, and, um, and Baltimore is, is controlling for some of these high overhead costs. Does that make Baltimore more attractive to the types of people that you're describing?
1: I I think it absolutely does. And also Hopkins doesn't necessarily have to control for it. The the nice thing about commercial space here for, of which Hopkins has no relation other than we're perhaps adjacent. And that is that we're inherently cheaper. If if you're trying to rent 50,000 square feet of, of, office and lab space in Boston versus here, it's going to be about half price, having nothing to do with us. One of the things we have tried to do though, and I I really learned this uh, from my colleagues at QB3 in in California, they they set up a a shared lab space and have been very thoughtful. And that is that if if you look 15 years ago, 20 years ago, if you were a biotech company trying to set up shop, there might've been a hundred different folks out uh, with companies trying to raise money and only one would be picked up, right? So it's one out of a hundred And then for that one that actually got funded, you'd need to raise 10 or 15 or 20 million just to get started. And that meant finding space, building out space, signing a long-term lease. And so by the time you get to your first critical experiment that's going to determine the value of the company, you're eight months in, 10 months in, maybe a year in. What we've tried to do here, and again, fostered after best practices across the country, is to build flexible and affordable space right here in East Baltimore, that has lab, that has office, that has lots of shared equipment that we've we've bought, we've gotten donated through various forms. And so if you're that, if you're those hundred companies and all you have, let's say, is a small business grant from the government or uh, some rich uncle has given you $100,000, right? right? You can rent a lab here. You can rent a bench. You can rent an office. You can rent just a desk if that's what it takes and get started start those experiments in in less than a week and get off the ground and really see if you can de-risk your company. So I, I think we have taken that challenge head-on. We have seventeen thousand square feet of lab and office space in fast forward right here part of JHTV uh, in Baltimore um, and, and another 10,000 square feet near our homewood campus of lab and office for these exact types of startups And so as far as as barriers to entry, we're trying to tick off as many as we can
0: yeah and it's 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 really powerful to think about there's significant risk in starting a new any new business right but systematically de-risking some of these these front-end perceived or real risks for the student entrepreneur or the the faculty member who wants to commercialize their invention is a role a a unique role in some ways that a university can play, right? For for purposes of real estate and 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 licensing and, and other things. But how does how does that impact the way that Hopkins will move forward in its journey to become a hub of entrepreneurship and innovation in Baltimore? Is it important to continue to establish physical locations? that allow
1: serendipity to happen? Uh, is, that, is that part of the, the overall approach? So I don't think we're likely, I do not think we're likely to build further real estate. But what I think what we can do is really have a strong handoff to our real estate friends. So okay. we have a number of creative and thoughtful developers in town who regularly approach us and say, which of your companies need growth space and right. how can we help? And, and are true partners uh, in that aspect of things. And so I, uh, again, I think it's unlikely that we'll build up from where we have, but the, the purpose of our space is really just to plant those seats. It's not so that after one or two or three years, once you've raised money and have substantial employees that you're staying here, it's really not that. It's so that you can do that early work and then be able to raise capital and, and get, grown up space so to speak <laughs> so to speak these are our seedlings but yeah, once you've grown right. up you, you know you've got to move on and 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 we're very supportive from then but not from a real estate perspective so what we hope is and what we've seen is that the turnover is allows the new companies to move in as the old ones graduate and and become larger and larger companies and i think we'll continue to see that so i i don't know that the answer is building more space but i do think a big part of the answer is the real estate development community here in Baltimore understanding the types of companies we have, understanding that most of them will need some form of lab space, mm-hmm. not all, but, mm-hmm. but many, and how they can be thoughtful and accommodating because the, the, it's not necessarily the, the, you know, the normal way is 10 year lease. Right. Um, you know, all sorts of, you know, pay for the build out, all sorts of things that don't necessarily jive with young companies. And so, so I think where we've been creative and thoughtful, it, it takes thought partners in that exercise on the real estate side.
0: Yeah. That makes, that makes sense. Um, couple rapid fire questions to close if, if you'd allow, where will the Baltimore innovation entrepreneurial ecosystem be in five years?
1: I don't think there's any reason that we're not going to be third behind Boston and San Francisco. From a life sciences perspective, we are well on our way. We had more growth in venture capital in our region than any other region in the country. We're seeing dramatic trends in terms of, of venture growth and and venture dollars coming in. And so if we're not number three within five years, then, then we should really look hard at our plan. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's a good challenge, right? Um, where can listeners find out more about uh, JHTV?
1: Sure. So our website is ventures.jhu.edu, or you can just Google Johns Hopkins Technology Ventures. And you can find a lot of information about the companies that we have, about the resources that we have, about the student teams that we have. And just in general, the the types of events that we throw. So we have a a newsletter that uh, we really do try to have a strong communications presence. Um, We would encourage you to sign up for the newsletter and, and come to some of our events.
0: Much appreciated, Christy. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: That does it for this episode of Super Cities. Before we go, some real talk. Cities feel broken, too expensive, too crowded, too chaotic. So we created Super Cities to elevate the people and trends moving cities forward. This movement is just getting started. So please rate, review, and subscribe to Super Cities and tag us using hashtag SuperCities. Your support really helps and I'm thankful for it. This is Brendan Hart and Super Cities signing off for now.